0: Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my fine friends. Welcome to the fourth episode of Season 9 of the Tom Petty Project Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Brown. This is the weekly podcast that digs into the entire Tom Petty catalogue, song by song, album by album, and includes conversations with musicians, fans, and people connected with Tom along the way. A quick thanks to the steadfast Paul Roberts, who reminded me that I haven't been posting polls asking for your ratings of the songs lately. Um, If I had a budget for it, I would... Definitely hire Paul as an associate producer. Um, so, some quick social media following last week's episode on King's Highway, starting with Mr. Roberts. He says, top song, but only rated as okay in the Petty Collection. Has the misfortune to be positioned between two belters on the album? Listening to live versions, I have to take my hat off to Stan. He gives the tune a new dynamic. I know the music became more reflective, but Stan always delivered the goods live. I just wish things could have worked out differently. Nothing against Steve, who is also great, but in a different way. And this is something that we're going to be talking about starting from, well, next season, I guess. You know, the way the Heartbreakers sound changed when Stan left the band. And I'm a huge fan of both Stan and Steve Ferroni, so it's going to be fun to start to contrast and compare their styles. Regular listener and all-round lovely person, Mary Beth Donnelly, commented, I grew up in Brooklyn, and two of my siblings have relocated to Connecticut but as much as I really want to make that connection with the so-called tri-state area, I agree that's not what Tom meant at all. Instead, I think a theme running through many Tom songs is the idea, or ideal, of haven, sanctuary, a place that's devoid of worry or troubles. Whether it's a higher place, room at the top, wildflowers, I can hear in his music that he was a worrier, but he was enough of an optimist to imagine a place he could go to escape that anxiety. I think King's Highway fits in with that recurring theme beautifully, and as an optimistic worrier myself, I can really appreciate the message of hope this song and so many of his others conveys. It's a beautiful song. So that was in response to my comment that my belief is that the King's Highway in the song is purely metaphorical rather than, you know, talking about a literal place. And there definitely are multiple recurring themes in Tom's music, and hope is one that crops up again and again, sometimes in unexpected places. And it's not the kind of schmaltzy insincere hope that many writers build into their lyrics. It's never forced or done for show when Tom imbues his songs with it. Bob Reedy rates the song a 12 out of 10 and says, Part of the King's Highway is in Connecticut, and I have driven on that too, and of course thought of Tom. Tom's imagined King's Highway is probably a magical one. I'm sure he realized that this was his second song in a decade about a mode of transportation and a King's. King's Road is a great song too. And it's definitely comment-worthy that this is the second upbeat song based around, you know, King's Road, Highway. But sometimes those coincidences are just going to happen. And I do know that this is one of Bob's very favourite songs, and it's definitely become one of my top-tier deep cuts that I'd give to any non-pedihead alongside any of the hits to introduce them to Tom's music. Mark Lindsay from Sight & Sound Comments Heard this one live at Red Rocks on the Mojo Tour. Between the excitement of the crowd's anticipation, the lights going out, and then, boom, the song erupts into a rocking start to a great night. Perfectly captures the classic Rick Rickenbacker sound, the Bird's legacy, the band's perfect accompaniment by enhancing the song and Tom's optimism in three minutes and one second. Another standout at the live show he was at, he's talking about, was I Should Have Known It. How was that riff not already done? <laughs> Joe Cocker opened that night as well. What an evening at a legendary venue. And I've commented before, and I think I actually talked to my guest, um, Janet Lavelle about this. Red Rocks is one of my very top sort of bucket list venues to see a show at. You know, along with the whiskey and probably Madison Square Garden are the three places I really want to go see a show at. I can only imagine how cool that was to see too. And as a quick shout out to Mark too, uh, he runs a fabulous um, not-for-profit eye care program that's dedicated to Tom's memory. And I'm going to be chatting to him later this month, early December, I think. And I'm looking forward to sharing that conversation with you because um, the work that Mark does is is fabulous. And I think you will enjoy learning about it. So the votes on this one are coming back overwhelmingly positive, um, which is no massive surprise. I think it's currently, majority is about a 7 to 9, and then about 30% or so 10 on Twitter, where I'd say Facebook is probably more, it's probably closer to probably 80%, 75, 80% um, rating this one a 10. So it is a great song, people love it, uh, and I'm not surprised that the results are coming back positive. Anyway, that's probably enough social media for now. Uh, Today's episode looks into the title track from Into the Great Wide Open. There's a link to the song in the episode notes. And if this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, I don't play the song or clips on the song in the episode itself in order to avoid, you know, copyright issues, upsetting the Tom Petty estate and just generally making sure that I'm on the right side of, of all those things. So um go listen to the song, come back and then we'll talk about it. When author Paul Zolo asks Tom about the origins of the song in conversations with Tom Petty, Tom says, I just kind of fell into it. You don't know where those things come from. I was just playing those chords and this little story started to appear. I carried it around in my head for a while and refined it a little bit and I had it pretty well written and then I played it for Jeff. So that's Jeff Lynn, obviously the producer of Into the Great Wide Open and Full Moon Fever and he helped me. Into the Great Wide Open would be the second single released from the album, but Inexplicably, to me at least, it only reached ninety four in the US while failing to chart in the UK at all. Despite the album peaking at a market high number three in the UK, um, the song did hit number four on the US rock chart. But expectations coming off the back of Full Moon Fever were much higher than this. When you look back at the charts in nineteen ninety one, you can almost see where Into the Great Wide Open was competing in, you know, a sort of a strange space. Paula Abdul, Boys to Men, CNC, Music Factory, Color Me Bad, and Seal were all in the top 10 the week that this single was released. On the other hand, Brian Adams topped the chart that week with his mega ballad, Everything I Do, I Do It For You, and Rod Stewart, Roxette, and future collaborator Lenny Kravitz were playing guitars in the top 20. So it's not just a stylistic issue that was at play here, or not mainly. In Warren Zane's biography, Petty, Tom's manager, Tony Demetriadis says that Al Teller at MCA Records was a huge fan of the album and to his amazement told Tom outright, this is going to sell 6 million albums. So when the label's telling you that this album's going to almost double the sales of Full Moon Fever, you can see why expectations are raised to the roof. Petty's manager would go on to say, why say that to your artist? Now if you sell 4 million, you've failed. He could have said that he'd do everything he could for the album, that he's fully behind it. But no, he said it's going to sell 6 million. And it did well, but it didn't do that. For those of you who are stats nerds, the album is certified double platinum in the US, Canada and Sweden and gold in Germany, Switzerland, and the UK. So we know that it sold at least, you know, just about 3 million copies worldwide. Full Moon Fever, for contrast, was certified five times platinum in the US alone, which eclipses the worldwide impact of its follow-up. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, this could all have been saved for the album rap episode, couldn't it, Kev? But I bring it up to highlight that there's a supreme irony in the subject matter of this song and the narrative that was being played out behind the scenes during the album's promotion especially in the line The Sky Was The Limit. Even in the context of an artist who is coming off the back of a five-times platinum record, art is art, but business is business. The song begins with the full band coming in right on the one. Mike Campbell immediately takes the spotlight with that searing yet simple slide guitar intro. Two phrases which lead us through the four-bar intro and into the first verse. After Paul Zolo comments that that part is very George Harrison-esque, Tom responds, while it might have been, George really liked Mike's playing as well. They had a mutual admiration for each other on slide guitar. And that slide is laid over top of a dead straight backbeat kick snare pattern from Stan Lynch on drums, and a descending E minor chord progression that is being played both on acoustic guitar, I'm pretty sure it's 12-string, a 12-string acoustic, and Ben Tench's organ, that I guess is just playing the root E and the descending note. The progression itself is an easy step down of the fifth note in each change. The chords are E minor, E minor major 7th, E minor 7th, and E minor 6th. So if you're playing that on a piano, you play E and G, which is the 1st and minor 3rd, then you play E again an octave above, then step that note down from E to E-flat to D to D-flat. Again, nothing earth-shattering or particularly pioneering, but as always, very effective. That chord progression immediately sets up the tension that the verses rely on. The bass guitar is playing 8th notes, sitting on the root E note. So another really short, sweet 4-bar intro to the song. The first verse begins with that same chord progression repeated twice through the first four bars. I think I was using the terms front half and back half for the verses and chorus in last week's episode, and it's sort of as useful a structure to talk about this song also. So the front half of the verse is that E minor, E minor, major seventh, E minor seventh, E minor sixth, repeated twice over four bars. A simple crash cymbal signals the transition into that first verse, and immediately we're introduced to Eddie, the song's protagonist. Without that slide guitar, you can really hear the acoustic here. and again there's something about that tone that screams 12-string. And when it played live, it was played on 12-string, so I'm pretty sure it's 12-string, folks. The kick and snare drums sound great in this section, too. The snare really cracks, and is mixed fairly high, while the kick is a little more subdued and just a little flatter. You also hear the bass guitar more clearly here, and maybe it's just that the ear is drawn forcefully toward that slide guitar in the intro, as I suspect the level on that bass hasn't changed one decibel from the intro to the verse. In the second half, or the back half of the verse, We have a change to A minor and a slightly different descending progression with full chords being played. At this point, you can hear what I believe is a Fender Rhodes piano, which is, if you don't know, it's like a semi-acoustic electric piano. It's one of the early electric pianos. You might not think you know what that sounds like, but I bet you do. Think about the solo on Get Back by The Beatles. That's Billy Preston tearing it up on a Rhodes piano. And you can hear it much more clearly later on in the song as Benmont adds in a really, really tasty little lick. This A minor progression resolves down to the major key for the song on the line, the future was wide open. These second four bars are then capped off by what is really the signature hook of the song, that big changy ding a ding 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 Here, do you like that? That's pretty good, hey? Um, here it lasts for one bar before heading into the second verse. In conversations with Tom Petty, when Tom tells Paul Zolo about Jeff's help with the song, one of the things he specifically mentions is this section, or this part. He says, he, Jeff, added a few ideas too, like that chord turnaround, Jeff's idea. And if you don't know that term, you can think of a turnaround as a transition between two sections of a song, something that sits just outside the verse or the chorus in some way. And this turnaround is very dramatic. The second verse sees the addition of an electric guitar playing the chord progression in a a nice loose arpeggio. And I've used the word arpeggio lots, lot, and maybe I haven't explained that for non-musicians. But what it basically means is that rather than playing all the notes in a chord at the same time, as you would if you were just strumming a guitar, you play each note in the chord individually. So you can hear Mike playing E, G, B, G, E flat, G, B, G, D, G, B, G, D flat. So he's playing those notes in the chord, but playing them individually. And it matches that descending pattern. At the end of the second pass of this progression, after the line, he found a nightclub he could work at the door, you hear that gorgeous Rhodes piano that I was talking about earlier. I was talking to an upcoming guest on the show, and we were discussing the Heartbreakers as a band, and Benmont in particular is a keyboard player, and the fact that they were all technically superb musicians who could play really complex music any time you wanted them to, but all served the song spectacularly well. And that little lick from Benmont is one of the most glorious examples of that. It sounds like a really simple blues lick, but he's adding in a couple of expertly played grace notes to that lick that make it way, way harder to play than it might sound on first listen. And if you think, yeah, but it's the studio, so we had a bunch of takes to get that right, go listen to this song live anywhere. You know, it's on Take the Highway Live, I'll put a link to that, or if you go listen to any of the bootlegs, he nails that lick every single time. It's so tasty and so cool. At the end of this verse, Mike's guitar part that was playing those broken chords really chimes out to lead us into that turnaround, which this time is extended to two bars and ends the second time around on the major fifth instead of the root. Uh, and so incredibly satisfying that we get that resolution up to that chord. So it's the first time in just about a minute this song has been going already, where we really go full major key, and you can just feel that the chorus is coming, even if you've never heard this song before. And because the first bar lands on the root note, it's a really logical transition back to the verse. But when we do it the second time with the second bar and that major fifth, we getting, in this case, D major, It really builds and pushes you only in one direction, and that's the direction of the chorus. There's a super little bit of production here, too, that I'm pretty sure I'd never noticed. I always thought there was a snare fill here from Stan on the three-hand leading into that chorus, but that only happens the second time round from the verse to the chorus. In this first instance, it's actually the bass guitar that plays those 16th notes on that major, high up the fretboard, and makes it kind of sound like a snare roll. So I think that's very, very cool. Um, and again, as always, there's something new I've learned about a song I would have told you I knew pretty well before writing this episode. The chorus is such an interesting chord progression, too, because it doesn't go where you'd expect Petty to go. After Full Moon Fever, learning to fly in King's Highway, we've been used to hearing very simple, you know, but subtly impactful three and four chord songs. The progression in this chorus, though, is G C D Sus four G E minor D A minor in the first half, followed by G C. Dsus 4G, F, E minor, and A in the second half. So the inversion of the last two chords from being major minor to minor major in each half of the chorus is really unexpected and gives this section of the song a very distinct personality. The arpeggiated lead guitar part comes back in. We hear the addition of some shakers to the percussion, um, which add a little bit of swing to the section. And of course, we get those nice warm harmonies on Wide Open and Skies of Blue. I was thinking about the vocal style on this song too, and particularly these harmonies. They're really there as texture rather than being sort of big or bombastic or being lead. One of my other podcasts, I cover Queen, who are famous for those huge theatrical harmonies. And I've also fallen in love again with Van Halen in the last couple of years. I think I've mentioned this before. In large part, thanks to the amazing And The Podcast Will Rock that's hosted by my good friend, uh, who I met today for the first time in person, uh, Corey Morissette. Both of those bands, Queen and Van Halen, utilize harmonies in a much different way and there the lead vocal almost just becomes part of the ensemble at times rather than a distinct voice. You know, think Somebody to Love by Queen or Hear About It Later by Van Halen. Um, with this song and with the Heartbreakers in most cases, the harmonies are placed in order to fill out the sound rather than lead or take the spotlight. And you know, I always ask guests to describe Tom Petty in three words and maybe a great triplet would be Serve the Song. Because that's what the harmonies here are doing, and it's what the heartbreakers always do. You know, Tom wrote a ton of great choruses, or if you want to get all Latin about things, Cori. Uh Just on this album, we've already had two killer B sections in Learning to Fly and King's Highway. We've also had songs like Refugee and Rebels and The Waiting and on and on and on and on. But there's something about this chorus that elevates this song to a completely different level. The story's great, but I think without this major key lift in this section of the song, sonically, it would just be less effective as a piece. That pensive minor key progression through the verses builds the tension and that Jefflin turnaround provides respite, but the chorus really lifts you and punches home the message of the song, which is essentially one of hope, a sentiment that permeates this entire album. In the two-bar turnaround into the solo, we get another variation. We get that same GCG progression for a bar, but then rather than landing on the major fifth in the second bar as it does leading into the chorus, it simply repeats. So we get that root note resolution twice where we might be expecting a repeat of that transition into the chorus and that major fifth. The solo itself is only two bars and it acts again as a, a little transition into the third and fourth verses. But again, it, it's Mike Campbell playing the only notes you could possibly play in this part of the song. Every track I cover makes me more and more a fan of Mike Campbell's work. And I've definitely come around to the prevailing opinion that not only is he underappreciated, you know, broadly speaking, but that he's easily one of the greatest rock and roll guitarists of all time. My co-host John Paulson always says that he's his favorite guitarist or his favorite rock and roll guitarist. And he's not playing, you know, the pyrotechnics of, say, Randy Rhodes or the sort of the blues licks of Clapton, but he occupies a space in the rock and roll canon that few do. You wouldn't always notice him unless he wasn't there. And the chasm that he'd leave in every Heartbreakers song would be immense. There's a reason that he was heavily involved in all of Tom's solo projects as well as the Heartbreakers and Mud Crutch. If you're friends with Mike Campbell, you want him on your record it's as simple as that the third verse sees that arpeggiated guitar joined by a single slide note and we have the addition of some backing vocals so the changes are very slight and not moving the song melodically in any way but bolstering what's already there and this is something that jeff lynn brings to the table and tom picks up and runs with for the rest of his career sure there were examples of these subtle types of bills peppered throughout the catalog, but i do believe that in working with jeff tom really added some new tools to his tool belt that he could pull out and utilize far more readily from this point on. Rather brilliantly, those backing vocals are dropped out for the fourth verse again, to just keep the song shifting and not settled, you know, too comfortably into one mode. There's also a wonderful drum fill uh, after the line partied and mingled that only Stan Lynch would play. It's just, it's only four notes um, on the toms, but it's so swung and I've written sloppy in a good way, you know, all hyphenated. And I always wait for that little accent to the song because it's just so cool. And it, it's, It's not the same as the rest of the drumming in the song, which is pretty straight. So we get a little bit of syncopation, a little bit of swing there. We'll get into the lyrics later on, but I wanted to highlight a spectacularly misheard lyric here that I had no idea about for the longest time, which is idiotic when you consider I definitely had access to the internet when I really started to listen to Tom's music carefully. The line is, their A&R man said, I don't hear a single. I always thought that was A and Armand said, I don't hear a single. Now, I don't think Theret is a French name, but it sure made sense to me that it could be, given that Tom was definitely singing about a previously unknown character named Armand. Man, oh man, oh man. Look, in my defence, I don't think I'd ever heard the term A and Armand, so perhaps you can forgive my mistake. All right, folks, it's time for some petty trivia. Your question from last week was this. When the Heartbreakers played Kings Highway on Saturday Night Live on October 12th, 1991, who was the host? Was it A, Kirstie Alley, B, Christian Slater, C, Kiefer Sutherland, or D, Sharon Stone? Um, First of all, congratulations to Bob Reedy because he knew this. Uh, All four people hosted during SNL's 17th season. Christian Slater introduced Bonnie Raitt the week after the Heartbreakers' appearance with the legendary blues musician performing Something to Talk About and the amazing I Can't Make You Love Me. The week after that, after being introduced by Kiefer Sutherland, hair metal turned hard rock band Skid Row appeared to promote their second album, Slave to the Grind. Petty fan Eddie Vedder and Pearl Jam appeared toward the end of the season and performed Alive and Porch after being introduced by Sharon Stone. So your answer is... Kirstie Alley. Alley, then starring as Rebecca in Cheers, hosted the third episode of that season and introduced the Heartbreakers who played Into the Great Wide Open and, of course, Kings Highway. Your question for this week is this. In which country did Into the Great Wide Open not reach the top 10? Was it A, United Kingdom, B, Germany, C, New Zealand, or D, Canada? Okay, back to the song. Coming out of this last verse and into the chorus again, we now get that snare fill from Stan that's always in my mind in that first transition from verse to chorus. The last two choruses proceed without any real change, only a couple of simple drum fills from Stan Lynch to differentiate them, and the song ends on that repeated two-bar turnaround that he's used to transition from the first chorus to the solo. Where Tom's vocal on a song like Refugee or Rebels is like, you know, like sharp and steel, his voice here sits more in that butterscotch place that he could employ when he wanted to dial the energy back. Even in the chorus, he doesn't lean into any vibrato, doesn't crack or pinch his voice, and just lets that melody wash over you. And it's a song that doesn't need vocal pyrotechnics, because all the explosions in this song come from that wonderful turnaround, the tonal shift in the chorus, and one of the best narrative lyrics Tom or anyone ever wrote. Whereas songs like Something Big or Dogs on the Run have a loose narrative that leave plenty to the listener's imagination, this one is a much more fully realized and theatrical lyric. I'd love to know how long it took him to nail down the final lyric for this one and if there are pages of discarded ideas maybe kicking around somewhere. The story follows Eddie as he dreams of moving out to Hollywood to see what opportunity or chance might bring. Pretty quickly, he meets a girl out there with a tattoo too. And I love that deliberate alliteration as it's something that would sound or could sound awkward or silly in the hands of a, of a lesser songwriter. But as it's Tom, you know it's being done deliberately as a cheeky little bit of levity. Eddie and his girl move into, well, let's say it's affordable accommodation and Eddie starts to work as a bouncer at a nightclub. She teaches him guitar, and at this point, we sense that Eddie's story is going to be a rock and roll one. The chorus really gives you that scale of ambition and possibility that California and LA specifically has held for millions of aspiring artists for decades. Into the great wide open, under them skies of blue, out in the great wide open, a rebel without a clue. And I talk a fair bit about word choice on this podcast and the very careful way that Tom made sure that not only the words themselves made sense, but also flowed well lyrically when sung. So again, that choice of under them skies rather than under those skies or under the skies just delights me. It's awkward, and an English teacher would probably tell you it's wrong to use them, Uh, but in the same way you can't always have what you want, doesn't punch the same way you can't always get what you want does, lyrics don't need to conform strictly to grammatical exactitude. Tom took the line, a rebel without a clue, from the 1989 single I'll Be You by Minneapolis rock band The Replacements with whom he had toured. Uh, The term was coined, though, by Jim Steinman, who wrote Rebel Without a Clue for Bonnie Tyler on her 1986 release, Secret Dreams and Forbidden Fire. I've already talked about one misheard lyric, that comes up shortly, but there's another one here that amazes me. The paper said Ed always played from the heart. I'd always sung the paper said he'd always played from the heart. But it makes sense to restate the protagonist's name at this point, especially as the following line uses he. Specifically, he got an agent and a roadie named Bart. Now, here's a question for all you folks, and maybe you can leave me your interpretation in the comments. I think at this point, Ed might be getting a little bit big for his boots, and I think that she might now be out of the picture. The line, they both met movie stars, partied and mingled, seems to me to refer to Bart, not she. She isn't mentioned in the third and fourth verses, so I suspect that young Eddie is enjoying the stereotypical rock star life and the, all the attendant female attention that it comes with. And such a great line too, his leather jacket had chains that would jingle. It's such a specific visual detail. It's like, the room was painted blue and grey, all my meals were served on a silver tray from Dogs on the Run. It's closer to what a screenwriter would pen than what a rock and roll songwriter usually would. And it adds to the theatricality and charm of the scene and the character. The misheard line that I quoted earlier, their A and R man said I don't hear a single, is, as most petty heads know, a direct nod back to the fact that the, the suits at MCA literally told Tom that they didn't want to release Full Moon Fever because they didn't hear a single. On an album that has Free Falling, I Won't Back Down, and Running Down a Dream, on side one alone, they didn't hear a single. It's just astonishing. And it's a good reminder that the people who control popular music, what is released, which artists are signed, and what songs are going to be played on the radio, generally tend to have no clue about music itself. You know, there's that great story that Tom tells at the 2016 Music Care show about him and George Harrison playing Free Falling. And you know what? Maybe I'll let Tom's words say it.
1: Me and George Harrison and Jeff Lynne one night were at Moe Austin's house and uh, this was before we were just working on the idea of the Traveling Wilburys and uh, I had written this song Free Fall and, and done the record and taken it to my label MCA and they rejected the record and that had never happened to me before, you know? I was like, wow, what do I do, you know? And so we forgot about it. And we were at Mo's house, and dinner ended, and George said, let's get the guitars out and sing a little bit. And we sang, and George said, let's do that free-falling, Tom. Play that. So we had a kind of will rearrangement of it with harmony, and we we did it. And Lenny Warnaker is sitting there. He said, that's a hit with two acoustic guitars, you know? And I said, well, my record company won't put it out. And Mo says, I'll fucking put it out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sorry. (laughs) But anyway. Not supposed to do that. Okay, I was going to tell you... Sorry. I'm trying so hard to be good, and I just laugh every time
0: I listen to that speech, and I've listened to that speech a lot. To bolster my argument that Eddie's love interest is no longer on the scene after the first chorus is the fact that she's only ever referred to as, you know, a girl, or she, rather than being given a name. You know, where Mellencamp sang about Jack and Diane, it was because Diane was an integral part of the story. She, in this song feels like she's secondary to Eddie's central narrative, in much the same way Bart and his leather jacket are. They're markers in the story of the rise of this young man pursuing his dreams. And again, let me know what you think of this hairbrain theory. I'd love to hear your interpretation of that element of the song. Um, it's obviously a well-known lyric in the petty canon, but regardless of how many times you've heard it, it is a fantastic story. When Paul Zolo reminds Tom that he's referred to it as a, a very funny song and a true song, Tom replies, it's a narrative, it's a story, and I think it has some truth in it. It's light-hearted, in a way, with a kind of black humor to it. This album, though it's a heartbreakers record, still has that anchor back to the writing process that Tom went through with Full Moon Fever, and you can see how that was always going to cause friction within the band. The album previous to Full Moon Fever, Let Me Up, I've Had Enough, was largely written in the room with the other guys and recorded as close to live as the band would come up until Mojo in 2010. There's a segment in 1994's Going Home TV documentary where Tom is talking about the album, and I'll let you listen to it, yeah.
1: We did make an album called In of The Great Wide Open. And we uh, we all played on it. We were never there all at the same time. You know? Why? Well, we're just we're being a little moody at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and we weren't all there at the same time.
0: I just love that Mike cracks up while he's sitting next to me and kind of sits back in his chair and puts his hands behind. His head, like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> There's a definite feel on this album of the songs being carefully constructed in a way that you don't feel was necessarily the case during the much lighter Full Moon Fever sessions. But one of the more organic feeling songs on this record for me is definitely this title track. Because of the looseness of the performance and the gentle swing the song has in places, it feels like one that could have been jammed out by the five heartbreakers and Jeff Lynne in the room. And I realize that this almost certainly isn't the case, but it's one of the songs on the album that has a more natural feel to me. Now, I said earlier that I wanted to add a quick production note. I've said repeatedly that I'm a huge fan of Jeff Lynne. I've also said that I completely understand why some people aren't. My friend Pete Nesta from the Honest and Unmerciful podcast mentioned on Facebook that in a parallel universe, Jeff Lynne instead was producing Duran Duran's comeback album. When I responded and mentioned that I usually like Jeff Lynne's style, Pete wrote, As Sometimes it works for me and sometimes it doesn't. I really like Cloud9, so that's the George Harrison record, but on the whole, while he may have been good for Tom's career and given him confidence and collaboration when he most needed it, I'm not a fan of his production work on these albums. So he's obviously talking there about Full Moon Fever and and Into the Great Wide Open. And Pete will be coming on the show at some point. And this is something we can definitely dig into because he's a fantastic musician and a great musical brain. And it will be a great conversation. Uh, And to extend an olive branch, let me say this, Pete. This is one of the few songs from these back-to-back Jeff Lynne collaborations that I do think would have been elevated by a different production aesthetic. I mean, imagine if this song sounded like Mary Jane's Last Dance. It would be even better, I think. And when you listen to live bootlegs, there's a different energy to it that really drives home the rock and roll wannabe story in a different way. All that said, I still love the album version, and I'll be taking Mr. Nestor to task over his comments. I'm just kidding, of course. Look, I know this episode's been a long one, uh, but I'm hoping that if you've stuck around this long, maybe you'll stick around just a little bit longer. Because really, we do have to talk about the video. In a 2020 Rolling Stone article, they quote Thomas saying, I even had people coming to me wanting to make it into a movie, and you can definitely see why. First of all, the video version of the song clocks in at six minutes, 33, as opposed to the three minutes and 45 on the album version. And this is because Julian Temple, who directed the movie, had almost 20 minutes of footage. And it was also good that the Heartbreakers went back into the studio to fill out some of the parts to accompany the video and make sure that the narrative was more cohesive. And I can't think of too many instances of that happening in rock and roll where the, uh, the video informs changes to the song. The first, you know, noticeable change is that you have a three bar organ solo following Mike's guitar solo. That's then followed a little bit weirdly by the last bar of Mike's solo again. And it's just, it's the same thing that he played. It's just, they've just looped it and repeated it. At around three and a half minutes, we get another organ solo from Benmont as Eddie's walking down the red carpet. This is followed by the turnaround again and then more soloing from Mike and Benmont. And the chord progression for the chorus is then repeated with no vocals before the song leads back into that full chorus and getting into the outro. The video itself is fantastic, as Tom noted, uh, with a, a Johnny Depp still fairly freshly famous off the back of Edward Scissorhangs, starring as Eddie. Uh, Tom Petty plays the tattoo artist who inks Eddie up in an early scene, while Hollywood legend Faye Dunaway plays Eddie's manager and, unbeknownst to him, a fairy godmother figure who tries to steer him away from Rock and Roll Excess and his eventual demise in the video. All the heartbreakers pop up too. Stan is the doorman who refuses to let Eddie's manager into the red carpet event. Ben Monten is Eddie's producer. Howie Epstein is a bike dealer. Mike Campbell uh, is the celebrity who presents Eddie with his music award. As well as playing Eddie's tattoo artist, Tom is also Bart the roadie, and the narrator of the tale, arcing back to, you know, the don't come around here, you no know, more video, you know, the Mad Hatter kind of thing with the the red hat on and whatnot. Um, and that part also sees the rest of the Heartbreakers performing in like a, sort of an Alice in Wonderland-esque miniaturized set with Stan Lynch playing upturned paper coffee cups with oversized drumsticks. Things don't turn out well for Eddie in the video, as success goes to his head, his girlfriend leaves, and the record company drops him. In the final scene, we see Eddie looking in on the tattoo parlor and seeing the next wannabe superstar getting their tattoo. And that superstar is played for about three seconds by Matt LeBlanc. The tattoo artist is Johnny Depp. So it's an excellent piece of filmography to go with an excellent piece of music, even extended and deliberately drawn out. The story in the video isn't necessarily congruent with the lyrics completely, I don't think, as Eddie's future is never resolved in the song. Indeed, the parting line in the last verse, the future was wide open, leaves things open. So who knows? After Eddie's girlfriend hurled his musical wards into the pool, as she does in the video, maybe he got cleaned up and got back on the right path. The song is deliberately open-ended, I think, to make the exact point that, no matter your past or present, the future is the great wide open that Tom is singing about. Okay, Pettyheads, that's it for this week. Um, Into the Great Wide Open is one of Tom's more memorable songs, I would say. I don't think that's controversial to say. Um, It's also the last of the original songs to appear on 1993's Greatest Hits. I know that John Paulson will want to talk about its inclusion over, say, Jamming Me, which went to 18 on the Billboard chart when we covered the Greatest Hits album. But to me, it's a no-brainer. As fun and catchy as Jamming Me is, it's nowhere near the quality of songwriting that this song is. Into the Great Wide Open was only played 136 times, but it was included in tours throughout Tom's career including being almost ever-present on the Hypnotic Eye Tour. A great lyric, a great turnaround, and some nice work by both Benmont and Mike. Should be a 10 out of 10, right? I just can't help thinking that a cleaner production approach would have elevated this song to an even greater height. So I'm going to, possibly controversially, hold a point back and rate this one a 9 out of 10. Uh, The Tom Petty Project is a proud member of the Deep Dive Podcast Network. Go check us out on Twitter at Deep Dive Podnet. I'm sure you'll find something there that you like. Uh, you can also check out my other podcast, uh, Seaside Pod Review, a Queen podcast that I do with my best friend, Randy Woods, who performs all the music in the podcast, um, and the Ultimate Catalog Clash that I co-host with the hardest working man in podcasting, Corey Morissette. Uh, don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, threads, and YouTube at the Tom Petty Project and on Twitter at Tom Petty Project. Go follow, like, subscribe, all those things, and leave reviews, ratings, all the you know, I'll do all the things that I keep asking for you to do every week. Um, keep talking to me on social media, and I'll try to read out as many comments as I can. And when you're looking for Tom's music, please visit official streaming platforms, you know, Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, all those places. Or again, go to your local independent record seller. They need your support and you need some physical media. Come on, you need something to love and hold and cherish. You know, something to put in a frame, something to put on your coffee table. Go buy real music. If you're looking for official merchandise, go to TomPeddy.com. And if you're looking for merchandise for this show, please go to TomPeddyProject.com. Don't forget to check out the Tom Petty Nation and Tom Petty Fans Forever groups on Facebook. If you're not already a member... And you know what? Check out uh, Tom Petty Radio on Sirius XM. Until we meet again next week, keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind. Try to say I love you to someone at least once a day. Stay safe and healthy, and I'll be back with you next week with the deep cut gem, Two Gunslingers. Bye-bye.